What's up, everyone? We are three quarters of the way to episode 100. This is episode 75 of WFS, The Will Ford Show. Terrific to be in. And Kawhi Leonard has shocked the world and has chosen to flee the North. Uh, it's, it was really uh, incredible what transpired just a couple of days ago. Kawhi Leonard, the biggest fish left in the free agency, and he, it seemed like the Clippers were all but out of the discussion for his free agent destination, Um, and it seemed like it was either a return to the Raptors on a shorter term deal, or he was going to go to the Lakers and form what would be a likely dynasty with LeBron and Anthony Davis, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere... Out of nowhere, the Clippers signed Kawhi Leonard, and it was funny because this is the like this is a really diva way to do it by Kawhi Leonard because you know he's the biggest diva in the NBA. He did it in the, in the middle of the night at like two a.m. He announced his decision, so like pretty much everybody at two a.m. Eastern time that everybody's gonna be asleep for the most part. I know I was passed out. I wake up in the morning like eight nine o'clock. And I see Kawhi Leonard chooses the Clippers. And I'm like, what? Where did this come from? And then, scroll down a little bit further, the Clippers acquire Paul George from the Oklahoma City Thunder. And I'm like, what in the literal heck? Like, what the frick is going on? I'm so confused, so surprised. I'm mind blown. I don't even know what's going on right now. Uh, That's literally what was going through my mind. I was shocked. Um. And actually, I think I might have seen the Paul George notification first. And so when I saw the Paul George notification, I thought maybe, oh, the Clippers didn't get Kawhi. So they traded for Paul George so they could get a star. But then I see the Kawhi Leonard news too. I was just shocked at what happened. And if you think about it, it really, it makes sense. Um, Because reports said that Kawhi Leonard wanted to join a superstar. But he didn't want to form a dynasty in LA. He didn't want to join. He didn't want to join a duo that was already there. Um, he kind of wanted to create his own, and I think it was down to the Lakers. I think he was gonna go to the Lakers had the Clippers not went out and got Paul George. I think. I think Kawhi Leonard sat down with Jerry West and Steve Ballmer and Doc Rivers and said, "Hey, listen." You trade for another star, you get me Paul George, and I'm coming. I think it was a Hail Mary. I think it was just a long shot to happen. And the the Clippers went out and made it happen. And they turned the city of LA into what what now looks like the stomping grounds for the NBA championship. Uh, These two now are... The odds-on favorite, I believe the Clippers are are the favorite, and then the Lakers are just a step behind for the 2019-2020 NBA championship. LA is now the stomping grounds for the title, which is, I it, I figured it would have just been LA, that would have been the powerhouse, um, but now we've got two powerhouses in LA, so it's really interesting, and I'm 
I'm really excited for the NBA season because it seems like we've got so much parity now. There seems like there's so much competition, especially in the Western Conference. Um, the East is always competitive because there's never one team that's um, extremely dominant, has all the stars. Um, I I think this is incredible for the, for the NBA. I think it's going to boost ratings significantly. And I think we're finally going to see um, some familiar faces rise to the top. The, the LA Lakers are going to rise back to uh, the top where they should be. Um, the Clippers, who has always been kind of the the little little brother to the Lakers, they're going to be they're going to make some noise. They made some noise last year with no star taking the Warriors to six games, so adding PG and Kawhi automatically makes them probably the best team in the West. I mean, it just and the Warriors when they get Clay Thompson back, they're still going to be a good team. Um. They've also made a lot of roster moves as well, kind of blowing up the dynasty a little bit to free up money. But uh, like the 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 Rockets with CP3 and James Harden, they're still going to be good. Um, Thunder are now going to be out of the conversation, but I mean, this is incredible stuff. Uh, and the the Clippers, they really had to give up that the farm for Paul George. They didn't really give up a lot of players. Uh, they gave up Shade Gillages Alexander. Um, I believe another player. I think, yeah, it was Shade Gillages Alexander, Danilo Gallinari, and then they gave up like seven future first-round draft picks. Um, four of them were unprotected, so the Clippers have no chance of getting those back. The fifth one, um, I believe, is I believe it's lottery protected. And then um and then the next two are pick swaps. So the the Oklahoma City Thunder have the option to swap picks with the Thunder if they feel like those picks are going to be better or if they are better. Um so I think the Thunder got a great deal out of it. Granted that the Clippers are going to be good for a couple of years, so those picks aren't going to be lottery picks assuming that they're healthy in their championship contenders those going to those picks are going to be far outside the lottery they're going to be in the mid 20s to pick 30 um but it's still five first round picks to say the least so it's definitely a big haul and a lot of people are going to rip the thunder for making this deal for like after just signing Paul George but if you think about it this is all they could have done because they were able to re-sign Paul George last year and have a competitive playoff team this year. And like the Thunder aren't just going to let Paul George walk for nothing, walk to the LA Lakers for nothing. Um, people are going to act like that trading him away for all these draft picks is worse than letting him walk in free agency. And that's just not even close to the case at all. I would much rather re-sign a star Keep him for a season. You have a nice playoff run. And then you trade him for a big haul of picks. And you get a young player in Shea Gillages Alexander in return. There's not much more you could ask for there. There really isn't. 
you can't rip the Oklahoma City Thunder for this. I think Sam Presti did about as good a job as you could have given the circumstances. Paul George had requested a trade literally three days prior to the decision um, because I believe Kawhi Leonard was trying to recruit PG to to leave OKC and come to the Clippers, and they made it work. Um, the Thunder, the or not the Thunder, but the the Raptors. Uh, when they found out about this, that you know he would want to play with another star in order to to join a team, the Raptors got really desperate and wanted to try and get Paul George from the Thunder uh, to get Kawhi to stay. And the Thunder they tried to sell the uh, the Raptors on giving up both Russell Westbrook and. Paul George, and in return getting Pascal Siakam, my guess is they didn't want Russell Westbrook's contract and also pairing him. You probably have to give up Kyle Lowry in that situation just because of money. But um, they probably didn't want Russell Westbrook's contract and his inefficiency. And they probably didn't want to get, give up Pascal Siakam, who's one of the better young players in the league. Uh, and he was the most improved player this year. So you could have had Russell Westbrook, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Pascal Siakam if the Raptors really didn't want to give up Pascal Siakam. That would have been a great team, and that probably would have convinced Kawhi to stay, but the Raptors weren't able to get the Thunder, or the Thunder weren't able to get the Raptors to give up Pascal Siakam. Um, so that fell through, and that allowed the Clippers to take over, bring in Paul George for the plethora of picks. And now we've got a powerhouse in L.A. It's incredible. And now as a result, the L.A. Lakers, they they miss out on Kawhi Leonard. And they have to fill out the roster with, the, with that max level money that they had, the $32 million. They have to fill that out with some veterans and some other players. And they were able to... Bring in a guy like Danny Green, a nice shooter who can be their um, one of the, a, a starter, a definitely a definitely a good quality starter uh, at the shooting guard position. Can offer some shooting and some defense. They brought in Quinn Cook from Golden State, who is a a great young shooter. Uh, I like him a lot actually, and he's going to be pretty good for them. Um, they brought back Contavious Caldwell Pope, who hasn't been too reliable, but um, can score in spots. Occasionally, we'll play some defense for you. He's okay. Um, they did pay him quite a bit. I think it was two years, $16 million. Um, but you got to fill out the roster somehow. Uh, they brought back Rajon Rondo on a two-year minimum contract. They brought in Jared Cook, or Jared Cook, tight end in the NFL. Jared Dudley from the Brooklyn Nets. He's actually a very solid 3 and D wing player, small forward, uh, to bring in off the bench. Great veteran presence in the locker room. Um they brought in Avery Bradley, who's another great uh, guard, great defensive guard, um, and has some moves on offense. He's he's pretty good. And then they brought in Demarcus Cousins as well. So uh, it's going to be really interesting how the Lakers want to uh, how they want to shape their starting lineup. Uh, people think that LeBron should be the starting point guard. They should move him to point. Um, the Lakers have said that they want to try to move LeBron to point. So basically, they're not going to have a true point guard starting. 
Um, so if they do roll with LeBron at point guard, they're probably going to have uh, LeBron at the one. You'll have Danny Green at the two. Uh, I'd imagine uh, Kyle Kuzma at the three, Anthony Davis at the four, DeMarcus Cousins at the five. I'm not sure if that's really optimal because you don't have a ton of shooting. I I really wouldn't go with that. Um, I would go Quinn Cook at the one, uh, Danny Green at the two, LeBron at the three. Maybe you could either do Kuzma at the four, AD at the five, or you could go AD at the four, Boogie at the five, whichever works. I think I would probably go with AD then Boogie, and you bring in Kuzma off the bench with Rondo. And um, I think that would be the best lineup. And you don't even have to have, you don't have to let Quinn Cook run the offense. You can let LeBron be the point guard, but just let Quinn, Quinn Cook be the, basically be the two guard and just have some more shooting out on the floor. I think that's what's most optimal for the Lakers as far as their lineup goes. So that way they can keep plenty of shooting around LeBron because if you're going LeBron at the point and you're not, you don't really have any other guards out there, Danny Green is the only true shooter. LeBron is streaky at times. AD can step out and hit a three. Boogie can step out and hit a three. Kuzma can can step out and hit a three. But no one is a dominant three-point scorer, not someone you can rely on for a, a three-point shot consistently. So I... I honestly would go Quinn Cook, Danny Green, LeBron, AD, Boogie. And then you're bringing in guys like Rondo, Kuzma, uh, Jared Dudley, KCP. You're bringing those guys off the bench. They brought back JaVale McGee as well. Um, that's what I would roll with. You, you, can, you can let LeBron run the point. You can let him run the offense. But I think you need shooting in the starting lineup for the Lakers, you can't be, you can't have too big of a lineup with not enough shooters because that's not the way the league is. Uh, it, it's not the way the league is right now. It's not what the league is geared for, and you're, that's just, it's not going to win a championship. That kind of play, um, they need to have shooters out on the floor. Quinn Cook needs to start, and he doesn't have to run the point. He just needs to be out there, out on the wing hitting some spot-up threes, moving without the ball, things like that. Um, and then shortly after Paul George requested his trade out of Oklahoma City, he basically there was talks between OKC and, and Russ that, you know, maybe it is time to part ways, maybe look for a trade partner and just kind of just have a mutual breakup. It's time to move on to the next era. And the Thunder really didn't waste any time. Um, the Rockets were a team early on that wanted to pursue Russell Westbrook. Really wasn't sure if it was ever going to work out. Then the Heat emerged as a potential option. You could form a one-two punch in Miami with Jimmy Butler. I think that would have been really intriguing, uh, especially in the Eastern Conference. Um, but the Houston Rockets were able to put something together, and they have now acquired Russell Westbrook. And I think that's... This offseason has been absolutely incredible and so crazy. I, I, I don't even know. Like Russell Westbrook and James Harden are going to be teaming up again. It's like their days in OKC years ago. 
the last time they were on the same team together, they were in the NBA Finals against LeBron's Heat with D. Wade and, and Chris Bosh and those boys, the Heatles. Um, and now they're back together in Houston, and they're going to be one of the league's most exciting duos. Uh, Russell Westbrook definitely provides a more athletic uh, option at point guard, definitely more athletic, younger, more explosive, uh, definitely more of a highlight reel for sure um, than, than Chris Paul. Um, the package for Russell Westbrook included Chris Paul and a couple first-round picks plus some pick swaps for the future. So Chris Paul is going to OKC for now, and Russell Westbrook and James Harden are together in Houston. I think it's going to be really interesting because I think I think the Rockets really should have just stayed put, stayed where they were at. And I think they've been panicking too much over the last couple weeks because of the free agency madness and because of all the the duos that have been formed of late and. They've hit the reset, kind of, and they've brought in Russell Westbrook. I don't know how that's going to work out, especially in D'Antoni's system, where it's predicated on shooting a lot of threes. Um, Russell Westbrook is a high-volume shooter. He's not a great percentage shooter. Um, and both James Harden and Chris Paul, or Chris Paul, both James Harden and Russell Westbrook are ball-dominant guys. Uh Russ may be more ball-dominant than James Harden, although they both get a lot of assists. They're stat patterns. So I don't know how it's going to work. Mike D'Antoni's going to have his hands full. I'm really interested to see how it works. I think it's going to be a great team. I think it's going to be a, it's still going to be a great team. It's going to be one of the best in the West. We'll see if this move changes anything for the Rockets, if they can get over the hump. I think they would have been able to get over the hump anyways with without Golden State in their way because I don't think Golden State's going to win a championship next year. But they decided to make a big move. They brought in Russell Westbrook. Didn't have to give up too much. Uh, they gave up some first-round picks, but they're not that valuable to them just because they're a better team. It's crazy, man. I mean, we've got a ton of new duos in the NBA. We've got LeBron and AD. We've got Kawhi and Paul George. Katie and Kyrie, um, Porzingis is with the Mavs, with Luka Doncic. Now we have James Harden and Russell Westbrook. It's crazy how many great duos we have. And so now we're going to bring back the Ford food chain for a segment here. Uh, we're going to do the top 10 NBA duos, in my opinion, for the F Ford food chain. Now there's going to be kind of some asterisks besides one or two of these just because of circumstance and we may not actually get to see them next to each other in a year or so, but just based on talent alone and what we expect, these right now are the top 10 NBA duos in my opinion. Number 10, we'll start from the bottom. Number 10 in my opinion is, uh, I think it's going to be Luka Doncic and Chris Ops Porzingis. Um, they haven't played together yet, but two international players that are great friends. I think it's going to be a match made in heaven, Luka and Porzingis. They're going to turn this Mavericks team into a playoff contender. I think they're going to be fighting for one of the lower seeds in the Western Conference next year. 
two young, promising players. Porzingis is coming off the knee injury, but he's had a whole year of rest. I think they're going to be a great duo, and they're going to make the Mavs a contending team in the West. And I'm really looking forward to what they what they do. They're, the Mavs really are a team that I'm going to be following a lot next year with this duo. Um, number nine, I'm going to go with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. I, I, I always thought originally uh, that the Sixers were going to have to pick one of these guys. It was either Ben Simmons and his inability to shoot, you keep him, or you... Or you keep the big, strong center who's got some injury issues. Um, I I would personally keep Joel Embiid just because his upside is just it's much high. It, he's got a much higher ceiling, I feel like, than than Ben Simmons. Uh, ben Simmons still has to make the breakthrough with the jump shooting. So, it, but I think together they they made a tremendous stride this year, pushed the Raptors to seven games in the Eastern Conference semis. I think they're a great duo, and they've got a much better team, much more balanced team around them that I think is going to make them more effective. I really like them as a duo this year, more so than I did in years past. Um, I'm really excited for them. Number seven, or sorry, number eight is I'm going to go with Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. Um, I debated putting these guys a little higher on my list just because they've been strong players in the playoffs. For the past several seasons, they made it to the Western Conference Finals this year, albeit they were swept by the Warriors, but they played the Warriors close in every game for the most part. I think Damian Lillard is the th- probably the second or third best point guard in the in the game right now. And CJ McCollum has proven to be a very clutch player both on offense and defense, especially in the playoffs. So I really like where they're headed. They're number eight on my list. Um, number seven, I'm going with uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Middleton. Um, I wouldn't have given Chris Middleton a near-max contract. I don't think he's really worth that, but he is an all-star player. He had a great season last year. Giannis is coming off an MVP season. The Bucks are going to be... They're probably going to have the best record in the East again next year. Um, and they'll probably be in the Eastern Conference Finals uh, yet again. Um, they're they're going to win a lot of games by 15-plus points. Giannis isn't going to have to play 82 games. Chris Middleton's not going to have to play 82 games because they're that good, and they can they can win a lot of games for you in the Eastern Conference. I really like them. They're my number uh, seven. Number six, I'm going to put Russell Westbrook and James Harden. Uh, I I mean, we, we know what we saw in OKC five, six years ago when these guys were together, probably longer than that, but... We know what we had. Yeah, Harden was a six-man at the time, and he started occasionally with that team when Kevin Durant was there as well. But we're going to see how it works. Obviously, the talent, you know, it's there. They can be a great duo, but they're both very, very much ball-dominant guys, big-time triple-double guys. There's not going to be enough uh, triple-doubles to go around next year. So I don't think – I don't know how great they're going to be, but just on paper, looking at the names – it sounds like a great duo. Um, now we're moving into the top five. These are the the best duos, in my opinion, in the NBA. Most of them, three of the, or actually, really only two of them are are proven, and the rest we'll see how it works. But 
Um, number five to me is Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic. Jokic is a he's an MVP finalist. He's an MVP caliber player. And he's probably the best passing big man in the game behind Al Horford. Maybe right ahead, just ahead of Al Horford. Uh, just a excellent young player. Jamal Murray is a sniper from three. Great at getting to the hole. An acrobat around the rim. And they were second in the Western Conference last year behind those Warriors. So, I mean, the, and they're returning pretty much all of their guys. And I think they're going to be great again this year, and they're going to make another big push in the Western Conference. And, and Murray and Jokic can only get better. I mean, they're so young. They're already so good. They can only get better. So, Number four on my list is Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Um, two of the NBA's most talented players. Kyrie might be the most talented point guard in the league just as far as his offensive repertoire, the ball handling, the tough shot making, the Mamba mentality. And then KD is probably the uh, the one of the greatest scorers in NBA history, if not the greatest scorer, just with the combination of his length, his athleticism, um, his height, uh, how high he gets off the ground when he shoots, I mean, just the, the wingspan, everything. Uh, he's got all the tools in the kit. Obviously, we're not going to see this duo in action for a year, um, just depending on how KD recovers from his Achilles injury. But on paper, this this pup potentially is the most talented duo in the NBA, but we have to see it first. Um, number three on my list for the Ford food chain is Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Um, the, the, the LA Clippers, they're going to be a very good defensive team next year. Cause you're going to have Pat Beverly at the one who's a, a great on ball defender uh, and a pest with some of the star players. Kawhi Leonard is the best two way player in basketball. Paul George is probably the second or third best two way player in basketball. You got to sprinkle in Clay Thompson as well. So you got two of the three best two-way players in the NBA right now. That that also sounds like a match made in heaven. Two very gifted offensive players work really hard on defense. Just great all-around players. I am worried about Paul George's injury history, though. He just had two shoulder surgeries. He's had knee and leg issues in the past. I don't think this duo is going to play 82 games together. There's going to be some sitting out on on both sides, both PG and Kawhi, but I think just with their defensive prowess and how gifted they are offensively, they're a match made in heaven, and they should absolutely work in Clipperland. Number two is LeBron and Anthony Davis. I think Anthony Davis is the dream teammate for LeBron James, someone that because LeBron is a pass-first kind of guy, and AD is a guy that LeBron can just throw lobs to in transition, um, and even in the half-court sets, can just feed AD all day long, and they can really play off of each other. Because AD has got guard-like skills. He was a guard. He was a point guard in high school. He was only six-one, and then he sprouted. He had a eleven-inch growth spurt, and he's he's six eleven, seven foot. So, I mean. This he's got guard skills in a six eleven body. He can obviously bring the ball up the floor, run transition, and I I think LeBron and AD that's 
that's an incredible duo. And then number one is probably the most proven duo of them all, Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. They're not going to play together for much of the season next year until probably February or March when, when Clay comes back. But this is a duo that's won championships. Um, and I, I've always admired how Steph Curry and Clay Thompson play because they're very they're virtually egoless. Clay Thompson has been more than willing to take a backseat to both Steph Curry and KD when KD arrived. Steph Curry took a backseat to KD when he when he arrived. Uh, they're both just such unselfish players, both terrific players, and Clay Thompson's going to be fine when he comes back because he's a shooter. He's, he doesn't rely on athleticism a lot. His defense may be a little shaky when he comes back, but he'll be once he gets some conditioning under him, he'll be fine. That's the most proven duo in the NBA, and that's the best duo in the NBA. They've got the best chemistry. They've got the best chemistry out of all of these duo, duos on the list, and that's mostly because most of these duos haven't played together. LeBron and AD haven't played together. Kawhi and Paul George haven't played together. KD and Kyrie haven't played together. Um, Luka and Porzingis haven't played together. And Harden and Russ haven't played together in a long time. So that's what I, what I would list. Five or six duos right there that haven't played together. Uh, this is clearly the best duo in the NBA. And it's got the best chemistry. And they're the most decorated. So there you have it, the Ford Food Chain, the top 10 NBA duos, Curry and Thompson at the top of the list. All right, so a little Wimbledon update for you. Uh, the, the men's and women's finals are both set. The women's final was set yesterday, and the men's final was just decided today. Um, so on the women's side, I was predicting Ashley Barty to win the whole thing. She won the French. She had a great French Open. Really one of the, probably the best player in the world right now. She is number one in the world right now, but just probably the best player, um, in my opinion, in the world right now, despite the loss. I think she's still really good. Um, just had a bad match earlier in the tournament. But uh, Simona Halep, who I have not been tremendously high on, I think she's overrated, Um but she definitely proved me wrong over the last two weeks here with Wimbledon. She's made it all the way to the Wimbledon final. She's more of a clay court player, in my opinion, than a, a grass court. And certainly she's much stronger on hard court. Um, but she's had a tremendous grass court season. And she's going to be taking on the big dog, Serena Williams. Uh, Serena Williams is trying to make that breakthrough and, and get her first major championship since her since giving birth to her child. And since the Australian Open of 2017 where she beat her sister Venus and she was pregnant at the time. So she's trying to trying to win that first major, get number 24 and, uh, and tie, I believe, Steffi Graf for the most uh, major championships of all time as far as the women's go. I believe it's Steffi Graf. Uh, with twenty three, with twenty four, maybe it's. Um, I don't know. We'll look it up. I I should know this because I'm a big tennis junkie. But, um, women's record, tennis major or tennis grand slams. I'm I'm pretty sure it's Steffi Graf. Actually, it is Margaret Court. So that's my fault. Uh, Margaret Court has twenty four singles majors, an all time record. And Serena Williams has 23, looking to make it 24 this weekend. So, 
Um, if I, if I have, obviously the favorite, I think, is Serena Williams. I'm going to be rooting hard for Serena Williams. Um, she's been talking about how there's really no pressure on her. She doesn't feel any pressure. Uh, when she first came, she came back, she did, but she realized that, you know, all the pressure around her, it was just noise, and she's just kind of zoned in, and she just she doesn't feel the pressure to win. She's just going out there and, and doing her best. And so I'm rooting for Serena. I think Serena's got the edge. She's certainly, she's won eight titles, or seven titles. So she's looking for number eight this weekend over Halep. And Halep's going to need a really strong showing against Serena uh, to, get the, to get the job done. I think Serena actually is also at an advantage because she's played a lot more matches. Usually you would think playing more matches, playing longer kind of hurts you. I think it's helped Serena. She played in the mixed doubles with Andy Murray. They made it to the semifinals um, before getting knocked out by the world number one. And I think playing in the doubles has allowed her to stay sharp, stay fresh, and keep hitting the balls clean, keep the rust off. And I think that's why she's played so well in Wimbledon this year. She was very rusty in the final last year against Angelique Kerber. Um, more of a power player now than she's ever than really she's ever been. She's, she doesn't move as well as she used to. Um, obviously, she's had a child and she's a little bit older. Um, not every no player moves as well as they did when they were in the middle of their prime. Um, so she's not great up at the net, serving volley. She's not that's not her game. Uh, but with the amount of matches she's played. Keeping the rust off, I think she's going to be a, a very fresh. She's going to be striking the balls cleanly, and I think she's going to make Simona Halep work. And I think she's going to get that twenty-fourth title and that eighth Wimbledon title, and she'll be back. And then we can start talking about title number twenty-five. On the other side, the men's semifinals were both played today. We had Novak Djokovic taking on Roberto uh, Batista Agu. Batista Agu, I believe, was the twenty-one seed. Uh, he had a Tremendous two weeks, tremendous tournament. Um, certainly a, a big surprise, uh, considering just the players we had out on the field, uh, in the field. But like a lot of big players knocked out early. Marin Cilic, Milos Ronic, Isner, John Isner, um, Alexander Zverev knocked out in the first round, I believe. So yeah, a lot of big players knocked out early. That uh, freed up an opportunity for Batista Agu to make a deep run. Ran into Novak Djokovic in the semifinals. Had a little bit of nerves in the first set. Obviously, it's his first semifinal uh, in a major. So, you know, kind of took him a set to calm down. Lost the first set, but then took the second set from Djokovic. And then it was really about even in the third set until about the fifth or sixth game. And then Djokovic finally made a breakthrough. And from there, he just kind of ran away with the fourth set and closed it out relatively easily. And on the other side, we had Chapter 40 of one of the greatest rivalries in sports, if not the greatest rivalry, uh, Roger Federer versus Rafa Nadal. Um, ep episode number 40, the 40th matchup between the two. Nadal has the, the edge in the matchup, um, both just overall and in majors. Um, but uh, Federer prevailed today. In four sets, took the first. The first set was, I mean, back and forth, pretty even for the most part. Uh, 
on serve the whole way, went to a tie break, and Federer dominated the tie break. Uh, Nadal only won one point on serve in the tie break. And second set, Roger had a break or had a break opportunity early, kind of let it slip through his fingers, and then everything just kind of fell apart. And probably played the worst set he's ever played at Wimbledon, um, losing 6 1 in the second set to Rafa. And I feel like that set, and John McEnroe said this best on commentary, it, it kind of felt like Roger, you know, he kind of checked out mentally. Not like he gave up, but he just knew he wasn't going to win the set and didn't really want to overexert himself. But it kind of seemed like, uh, like Rafa was lulled into a false sense of security and it kind of gave him a false sense of confidence winning that set so easily. Um, Cause that set only took about a half an hour and then Roger just came back recharged and played dominated the, the fourth or the third set um, won it, winning at six, three and then fourth set come, comes around. Roger gets an early break, goes up to one um, and then, had to fight off a tremendous effort to try and break back by Rafa Nadal, just constantly fighting. And Roger was able to hold him off. Rafa, I think, fought off five match points. And and Fed was finally able to prevail, winning the fourth set 6-4. And so Roger Federer is going to take on Novak Djokovic in the Wimbledon final. Uh, it's only it's only their third matchup um, in the Wimbledon final. The last two were both there were there were both finals 2014, 2015, and Djokovic won both of them. So Djokovic has the edge. Djokovic is the reigning defending champion. He was last year's champ. He defeat, ke- defeated Kevin Anderson in straight sets last year. Um, so I think the edge clearly goes to Novak Djokovic. It's going to be a really exciting match. Um, I am absolutely looking forward to it. I think Djokovic has got the upper hand. I think he's got he's had a smoother tournament. Um, but Roger's coming off of a very a, a big high, beating Rafa Nadal, one of the best players in the world. Um, so, and his biggest rival. So he's got definitely going to be feeling confident. But I think the edge right now goes to Djokovic. That's going to be on Sunday. Um, so. Definitely looking forward to it. It's going to be one heck of a match. All right. So we also had All-Star Weekend in the MLB this past week. Um, Home Run Derby was definitely one you didn't want to miss. We had some amazing young players, Ronald Acuna. We had we had Vlad Guerrero Jr. We had Jock Peterson. Um Pete Alonso, just some really, really good, powerful home run hitters. A lot of people didn't think Vlad Guerrero Jr. should have been in the home run derby um, just because, you know, he only had eight home runs on the year. But uh, definitely a, a huge power hitter, and the fans love him. Um, so it was. I mean, it was just an incredible home run derby. Um, we had Alex Bregman as well, um, Josh Bell from the Pirates, just uh, Carlos Santana. So it was in Cleveland. He was the hometown favorite. Carlos Santana was. Um, 
first round matchup, we had Vlad Guerrero taking on uh, Chapman from the A's, and Guerrero hit 29 home runs uh, to Chapman's 13, and that was a home run derby record, breaking Josh. Don uh, Josh, gosh, I almost said Josh Donaldson. Uh, the guy from the Rangers. I can't even think of his name. Good Lord Almighty. Um, Josh, Josh, Josh. Sweet Lord. I can't even think. Josh Hamilton. Josh Hamilton. Good Lord. Couldn't think of his name. Uh, but broke Josh Hamilton's record of 28 home runs um, from, I believe it was like 2008. So, uh, but there's there's kind of a gray area on that though because Josh Hamilton hit 28 home runs with 10 outs. So basically, you're an out is like not hitting a home run, where it's hitting a grounder, fly ball, foul ball, whatever. He did it with 10 outs, and Vlad Guerrero had four minutes with a timeout. So the rules have definitely changed; it's evolved, but nonetheless, it's a record. Um, I mean, give Josh Hamilton four minutes and see what he could do. Um, but anyways, he takes out Chapman with 29 home runs. Um, he takes on Jock Peterson in the second round, and they have a battle for the ages. You would have swore it was the uh, the championship round. Peterson took out Alex Bregman 21-16, to 16, and then in the... Uh, in the second round, Guerrero hit, I believe, 30 home runs, and Jock Peterson hit, and he Jock Peterson tied him with 30, and a lot of people didn't think Peterson was going to get that, like, get even close, and Peterson was just on a roll, swing after swing after swing was a home run. Um, so they went to a one-minute playoff, they tied again, and then it went to basically best of three swings. So you get three pitches, or not three pitches, but you get three swings. And whatever you do in those three swings, that's what you get. Uh, Vlad Guerrero got one to start it off. And Jock Peterson got one as well. So they went to another three-swing playoff. Vlad Guerrero got two. And Jock Peterson got one. Um, so basically a total of... Um, 40 home runs for Guerrero in the second round and 39 for Jock Peterson. That should have been the final. That was the most entertaining part of of the home run derby. Uh, that should have been the final. And I had a feeling just watching that, that whoever won uh, that matchup between Guerrero and Peterson, they were going to lose in the championship because they had just taken so many more swings um, than the guys on the other side. Um, so Guerrero moved on to the championship round. And then uh, on the other side, we had Pete Alonso taking on Carlos Santana. Alonso only needed 14 to knock out Santana, and he got that at the last second. Ronald Acuna uh, blasted away Josh Bell 25 to 18. Um, and Ronald Acuna had the best spray chart of any competitor in the derby uh, just hitting the ball all over the field whereas most everybody else 
was kind of pulling it to their strong side. So like Vlad Guerrero was just all left field. Jock Peterson was mostly right field. Um, but Ronald Acuna was just spraying it everywhere. Right field, dead center, left field, all over the place. He hit 19 in the second round. Pete Alonso only need, needed 20, and he got 20 at the buzzer. So Pete Alonso from the Mets taking on Vlad Guerrero in the championship round. Guerrero got 22. Um, and you kind of had a feeling he was gassed. And Pete Alonso got 23 right at the buzzer and kind of stole one from, from Vlad Guerrero Jr. Absolutely should have won the home run derby. I mean, he hit... Um, like 81 home runs, 40 plus 29 is 69 plus 20 is 89 plus two is actually nine. Yeah, 91 homers. He hit 91 home runs, and Pete Alonso only hit 57. So if you really think about it, Vlad Guerrero stole the show that night. Vlad Guerrero and Jock Peterson, um, but just how it how it goes you can't it's just random draw for the for the tournament like just how the seeds line up but it's just how it happens man it's kind of unfortunate Vigaro in our hearts is really the champion but um it, it's whatever i thought it was a very entertaining home run derby i thought it was a blast and i really enjoyed it um but i heard about a couple new things that are getting tried out in baseball. Um, some robot umpires in the Atlantic League All-Star Game, which is just in the minors. And then, so we'll look at that first, and then we'll get into the other one that seems even more, con- that it seems really confusing. I think robot umpires sounds like a good idea. Um, but I think my computer f- just froze. Yay. Uh, now it's loading. Hopefully, I'll get to read this article. I've got a really crappy computer, so I'm sorry. Um, but Robot Umpires does sound like a very... Sounds like a good way to go. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of it because in tennis, they have the, the bird's eye view. It's all computerized, so players can challenge and they can get the absolute correct call. But... Um, so if you're going with robot umpires, you're going to get, it's going to be a pure black and white strike zone. There's not going to be any mistakes, or at least there shouldn't be. And the game should be 100% clean. There should be no favoritism, things like that. Um, I imagine, though, that's only going to be for behind the plate, and that's not going to be for the first and third base and and second base umpires, to say. Just because... I don't know how you're going to do that unless you go replay every time for outs and stuff that are close. Um, let's see. Let's see here. Just reading this. Um, okay, so the Independent Atlantic League became the first American professional baseball league to let a computer call balls and strikes for the All-Star game. The plate umpire wore an earpiece connected to an iPhone in his pocket and relayed the call upon receiving it from basically the computer system that um, is determining whether pitches are balls and strikes. So he's crouched in his normal position behind the plate 
and he's signaling balls and strikes, but he's getting the call from his iPhone, essentially, from the app. It's like the Doppler radar system. So I'm not sure if this is 100% trustworthy, um, but like I, I would have concerns about the system not picking up pitches or registering that registering it just way wrong. Um, it's definitely got kinks to work out. I would keep it in the minors for now. I would not even think about bringing this up to the majors until we know that this is a 99% proof that this is pretty accurate. Um, and of course, having a an umpire back, to having still the human element behind the plate, it allows you to correct the call if... Um, if something seems a little off, like a pitch is just like way outside and they register it as a strike or if it doesn't register a pitch, things like that. I'm not even really sure how that would how that works. I'm kind of fascinated. Um, but hey, man, technology is uh, – there's always new innovations with technology, especially in sport and athletics, so – I'm really excited to see where this kind of technology goes. Um, but then this other part of baseball that they're also talking about, and I saw that, I just saw the title of it here on ESPN.com, just like on some of the prominent stories in all major sports. Um, if I can get my computer to load, that would be phenomenal. Um, yeah, so it's talking about stealing first base. It's getting a tryout in the Atlantic League. So, um, I don't know how stealing first base would work. How are you going to get away with st stealing, a stealing first base? Um, So once I get this article loaded up here, and I can actually read what they want to do. Um, so obviously, minor leagues are preparing to expand the use of robot umpires. We just talked about that. Um, batters may try to steal first base on any pitch that was not caught in flight. It expands the traditional dropped third strike rule to all pitchers. And oh, okay, so I I get it. So. So it's kind of like where if you have two strikes and you swing at a pitch in the dirt, um, you can still run to first base, but the catcher has to throw you out at first or he can tag you if you don't get very far. Um, but now this can apply to all pitches. So basically if any pitch is thrown in the dirt, it gets behind the catcher. You can take off at first base and basically it, I don't know how that would work statistically, if that counts as a stolen base or if that counts as whatever, but that's actually really interesting, and I kind of do like that a little bit. Um, I would have to see it being used, see it in play um, in the minors. Obviously, I don't watch a lot of minor league baseball, but I'd have to see highlights of it being used. I am really intrigued by that. Um, some other rules that are uh, being added, and they're going to be tested out in the minors. Um Oh, I love this one. So yeah, I've always thought it was kind of cheap that if you're trying to bunt and you have two strikes and you hit a foul ball, you're out. Um, 
I've always just felt kind of iffy about that. I don't really understand what, like it's a foul ball. I don't know why you would be out on a bunt. It doesn't, doesn't change anything. But um, now they're adding a rule where you get one foul bunt. One foul bunt is allowed with two strikes before it becomes a strikeout. So at least you're kind of shifting a little bit to my thought process and my opinion on it. So that's actually really cool. Um, another rule is that pitchers are required to step off the rubber to try a pickoff. I don't really know about that one because I feel like that's going to make pickoffs virtually impossible to execute if you have to step off the rubber. Um, and it's going to be difficult depending on which base you're trying to throw to um, and what hand you are. Um, I don't know. I'd have to see that one in action as well. I just feel like you're adding that extra step of making them get off the rubber. I don't know about that one. I think that's just going to make it a lot harder uh, for for pitchers to execute those pickoff plays. But I also do hate pickoffs as well because I feel like there should be a limit to the amount of times you can do it per inning. I think that should be the rule because it seems like pitchers, whenever I watch games, they do it like six times in a row and like it's not even close. And you can hear audible boos throughout a, a ballpark when pitchers do that. And I, I hate seeing it. Um, I'm okay with like doing it like once or twice. So like, yeah, you're trying to keep the runner honest, but to do it excessively, I think there should be a cap put on the amount of times you can do it in, in an inning, maybe five times an inning. I um, mean, no more than twice to the same runner or something like that. I don't know. Um, that's what I would do. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, require them to step off the rubber but who knows maybe this would deter them from even trying pickoffs if they know that it's less likely that they're going to be executed well so maybe it it will work in the way that i'm kind of doing it just kind of in a a reverse way but um and then another rule a relaxation on check swings to be more batter friendly so i assume that means they're going to be more lenient on check swings um just to make it more beneficial for the batters because, you know, it's very hard to pull a bat back when you're trying to check swing. Um, but yeah, some new rules that are going to be tried out in the minors. I'm definitely really, really interested in the, the stealing first base rule. Um, and I'm also very intrigued by the, the computerized, um, umpires behind the plate. I think that's a if you can get it to work, if you can get the technology to work and you can get it as close to foolproof as possible, like 99.9% perfect, I think it's a go. I would definitely roll with that. Um, but yeah, that's that's really cool. And I'm not a huge baseball junkie, but I'd have to ask some of my friends, maybe bring Alec Bell back on the show. Um, I have a friend also who does a podcast, Michael Pagano. He does the Minor League Baseball uh, podcast. So this is something that he's actually probably talking about. So I'd have to ask him about it, get his opinion, um, or maybe just ask him to address it. Um, 
but yeah, so check out that podcast as well. That's actually great informative baseball stuff. I I try to listen to that occasionally to kind of just get my baseball fixed and just kind of get be more informed on baseball. Um, but I want to transition into the last part of the show for today. Um, just some NFL stuff. Um, we do have some kind of notable news. Um, Glover Quinn retired. Um, Teddy Bruschi just recently, he's a football analyst for ESPN. He recently just had a stroke, so praying for him for a speedy recovery. Um, and that's obviously a big deal. Um, so I really hope he's okay and that he's recovering well and he can get back on the the analyst desk and drop some knowledge on us. But I uh, saw a title for an article, um, How to Draft a Fantasy Football Team in Nine Easy Steps. And I kind of wanted to wait a little while to do my fantasy football strategy, but I saw this and I was like, I want to see if this is if this lines up with my strategy, if it's right or wrong. I'm not going to say whether a strategy is right or wrong because I've never won a fantasy football championship. Um, I think I won my family's one last year, but it was only four people and the teams were stacked. So, like, it's a pretty good shot that, you know, any of us could have won. Um, but in leagues of 8, 10, 12 teams, it's obviously a lot harder. My strategy is different than a lot of people's, but I want to go through this article with you guys and see what their steps are, see what their strategy is like. Let's go through it, and I'll kind of just go through my strategy a little bit as well just to see if it matches. But the number one step is that value matters. The goal of the draft is not to simply fill out your roster. It's to build a roster strategically, Understanding that not all spots are created equally. Um, the most important uh, asset on your roster is having dominant running backs. Um, so yeah, so basically they're saying that the two positions you should go after in the first round are running backs and receivers because... Running backs are the most dominant asset, especially if you have a if say you're in a ten team league. If your pick, uh, let's go with twelve because I was in a twelve team last year. If you have pick one through seven, you're probably there. There's going to be some really good running backs there. You'll have Zeke and Le'Veon and Alvin Kamara, Saquon, Melvin Gordon, uh, guys like that. You're gonna have, there's going to be plenty of backs there. You can get one picks one through six or seven. Once you get to the later end of the first round, you're not going to have a tier one back anymore, and you're going to start moving into tier two and tier three running backs. That's where you're going to want to take a receiver. I'm not going to share who my number one receiver is right now. I'll wait until we get a little bit closer to fantasy football season. But once you hit seven through 12, you're definitely going to want to take a receiver um, because you're going to have an opportunity to take one of those tier two backs um, early in the second round, or um, depending on how the rankings, the pre-draft rankings are set up, you could even get you could get two 
of the league's top five or six receivers um, very close together. Um, now, yes, you are sacrificing the need of a running back and receivers. You can always get fine later. You can find value later. I would. This is what I would do. If you're early first round, take a running back. Second round, depending on the what you have there, running back and receiver wise, I would probably go receiver just so you can get a solid quality receiver. If you're late in the first round, take a receiver, then early second round, grab one of those top, those tier two, tier three running backs. Um, there, step two is, um, it's a question, but score, but quarterbacks score a lot of points. What about them? Um, so basically it's addressing whether or not you should take a quarterback uh, early in the, in, in the first couple rounds, picks or like draft, like rounds one through four. Personally, that's not my favorite uh, strategy. I, you can get great quarterbacks late in drafts. Patrick Mahomes last year in my draft went really late. I was actually going to take him, and a guy, one a, a friend of mine, took him just a couple picks before me. Little did I know he was going to have an MVP season. But ESPN kind of just lines up with what I'm saying. There's excellent options at quarterback late in the draft. Um, so you don't need to reach at a quarterback early. Be patient. Get some depth with your running backs and receivers. Um, that's the way to go, in my opinion. Um, you don't need to reach on a guy like an Aaron Rodgers or Deshaun Watson. Like That's what I did last year. I took, Aaron, I took Deshaun Watson in the third or fourth round, and he wasn't great. Um, so I think there's definitely more value later in the draft you can get a guy like an Andrew Luck or like you can get a young guy this year like a Dwayne Haskins or something who's going to start so um step number three keep hammering running backs and wide receivers early that is absolutely 100% correct you need to fill out your receivers and running backs um right away your first four picks should be two running backs two receivers um that's way more important than getting a top-tier quarterback or getting a defense or a kicker. Um, I 100% agree with them. Um, there are exceptions to that, obviously, though, like depending on pre-draft rankings. Like, um, so like maybe you get two running backs and a receiver. Maybe your fourth pick is a tight end. Um, and that, that's actually the fourth step on ESPN's article here. Um, basically, I think there's only, I think there's only a couple tight ends that would be worth taking within the first four or five rounds. And that's Travis Kelsey, Zach Ertz. They both put up a lot of points. Uh, I would have said Rob Gronkowski, but he's, he was injury riddled last year and he's retired. Um, George Kittle is an excellent young option. He had a lot of points last year. He's going to be with Jimmy Garoppolo again, so it's going to be exciting for him. Those uh, those are three tight ends that actually ESPN has listed, and those are three tight ends that I would take. Um, but otherwise, if you can't get one of those guys in the first four or five rounds, then you can wait a while and get, get some solid value later. Um, you don't need a top tight end, but if he's there, I would take him.
Um, step number five for ESPN is um, drafting your defense and kickers in the final rounds of the draft. Um, basically, their take on it is that defensive scoring for fantasy is very unpredictable. I think that's true. Um, I think that's 100% true because the Jaguars two years ago were the best defense in fantasy. I picked them up off the waivers. And last year, they they were around the 10th best fantasy defense. So still solid, but they, like, yeah, like it's, I don't know, it's weird. And like the Eagles last year, they were the number two drafted defense um, on average across all drafts. And they finished 26th in scoring. So, yeah, it's it's really unpredictable. I agree. It's probably the same thing for kickers because you just never know how a team's offense is gonna is gonna play um, week to week. So yeah, I I would agree. Especially be patient on kickers. You don't need a kicker early. Yeah, you don't need Justin Tucker. Um, I would probably grab a defense a little earlier, but kicker I would absolutely wait. You don't need a, the best kicker the quote-unquote best kicker in the league because the scoring is, too, is, like ESPN said, is too unpredictable. Step number six, play the lottery late in your draft. I wonder what this means. Um, oh, so basically it's basically saying that fantasy football is all about luck, um, which is 100% true. Like we, No one was going to predict that Patrick Mahomes was going to be an MVP and throw for 50 touchdowns, 5,000 yards. Nick Chubb went undrafted in most leagues last year. Um, like you just never know what's going to happen year to year with injuries, who's going to break out, who's not, things like that. Um, number seven, handcuffs are important. Dot dot dot. Selectively. Um, so there's a. This is what they have. I'm quoting them right here. It says, there's a term in fantasy football called handcuffing, which refers to selecting the backup to a star player, essentially just star running backs, already on your roster to protect yourselves in the event that the star suffers an injury. These picks usually come later on in the draft, but is it necessary? It depends. Um, so yeah, it's just basically telling you to select, like be careful selecting players who could, very well just sit on your bench the whole year and you kind of sacrifice flexibility where whereas maybe you could bring in another receiver but you don't want to sacrifice that running back um there's always a gem on the waiver wire week to week Um, there's always someone you can pick up in a spot maybe an injury pops up or a bye week there's always someone you can pick up in a spot that'll work for a week um like you don't necessarily need to stack up on a lot of players from a certain position because you want to protect your star player. Um, just kind of be be selective uh, and don't sacrifice flexibility too much. Um, step number eight, according to ESPN, is odds and ends. Um, Basically, just telling you to be mindful of bye weeks when you draft players. That's really important. I always make sure, like when I draft quarterbacks, when I draft running backs, especially, 
Um, quarterbacks, I only take two quarterbacks. I take two tight ends. Um, things like that. Occasionally, I'll have two defenses on my roster. So, um, And then step number nine is know the room. And I know exactly what this means. Basically... If you're playing with a group of friends, you got to know exactly what their tendencies are, exactly what players are going to fall in love with. Um, you've got to you got to have a plan, and you got to know kind of what your friends are going to do. Um, I had a friend a couple years ago take Justin Tucker in like the sixth round, took a kicker because he wanted the best kicker, and he kind of panicked. Um, so you just and you also got to know that the strategy of your friends can be somewhat unpredictable but you just kind of kind of you got to pay attention to what their your the 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 teams in your league and what their rosters are looking like as they're drafting so that way you, you can predict where they're going to go next and that can kind of help you pick your spots for a group of players that you want to kind of target at a certain position um for later in the draft things like that um all in all this was actually a solid article because I have a pretty set strategy and um, there's kind of lined up for the most part with what I had. So I'm, this was a pretty solid article, ESPN. Good job. Credit goes to Field Yates, uh, ESPN Insider. So great job, Field Yates. That's, that's a pretty good article, man. Um, you lined up with my strategy almost perfectly. Um, I, I say that like he listens to this and he, he knows me. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's a pretty good strategy. We'll dive into more of that once pre-draft rankings come out. I'm definitely going to go down, down the list of what I would do at certain spots in the draft, depending on what picks you are and things like that, what players are available. Definitely interesting, man. Looking forward to it a lot, but that's it for episode 75. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed. Uh, make sure you Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast, iTunes, The Will Ford Show, or on SoundCloud. You can follow on SoundCloud, like and comment on SoundCloud. Follow my YouTube channel, Will Ford, The Will Ford Show. Follow me on Twitter, at The Will Ford Show. Facebook, uh, I said I said The Will Ford Show a lot, like 12 times in like the past two sentences. <laughs> um, but yeah, share this with your friends. Share it with everybody you know. And we'll see you in episode 76. We're 25 episodes away from episode 100. It's WFS. <laughs>